Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. Beyond the Mask is also sponsored by crnaeducation.com. CRNAs, you can get the CE credits you need by just going to crnaeducation.com. They have over 100 AANA prior approved credits, all four core CPC modules, and even over 40 pharmacology credits. No subscriptions. It's all online and mobile friendly. Just go to crnaeducation.com. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out our CE credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to the Beyond the Mask podcast. This is the Anesthesia Alchemy edition, Terry and Gary Unplugged. Join hosts Gary Bridges and Terry Wicks as they deep dive into today's most important clinical conversations in a unique but educational way, in a humorous balance that only they can achieve. Let today's journey begin. Here are Terry and Gary with your next installment of Anesthesia Alchemy. Three, two, one. Hey, welcome to Anesthesia Alchemy, Terry and Gary Unplugged, the podcast where we dive deep into diversion and substance use disorders and anesthesia. Hey, join us as we unravel the complexities, the challenges, and the triumphs of nurse anesthetists who have embarked on the path of diversion and subsequent substance use disorder. I'm your host, Terry Wicks, and I'm joined by my co-host, Gary Bridges, both of us seasoned professionals and leaders in the field of anesthesia. And in this podcast, we're going to explore the diverse journeys of nurse anesthetists who ventured into diversion and substance use disorder, sharing their unique experiences, insights, and invaluable wisdom. Now, whether you're a nurse anesthetist curious about this exciting niche or a healthcare enthusiast eager to learn more, Anesthesia Alchemy promises to be an informative and engaging exploration of the intersection between anesthesia, nursing, and patient care. So sit back, relax, and join us as we embark on this enlightening journey into the critical topic across healthcare providers, and more importantly, the anesthesia profession. Well, thank you, Terry. Welcome back, folks, to another exciting episode of Anesthesia Alchemy and Terry and Gary Unplugged. I'm your co-host, Gary, and today we have a very special guest who's going to shed some light on diversion and substance use disorder. Also, some of you may actually require a number of credit hours that actually focus on addiction, diversion, and substance use disorder to maintain your state licensure. So the intent here, hopefully, is that this podcast series will satisfy some of those requirements as we intend to be fairly comprehensive in our approach to this topic. But before we dive into our conversation with our esteemed guests, let's take a moment to talk about what diversion is in the realm of the nurse anesthesia profession. Diversion is a critical aspect of healthcare delivery that often remains hidden from the public eye, but anesthesia providers, as you may or may not know, are at greatest risk for diversion and subsequent substance use disorder due to the ease of access prompted by life events personally or professionally. And it involves highly trained nurse anesthetists like our guest today, who takes on the role of anesthesia expert helping patients stay comfortable and safe during various medical procedures. So today, we have the privilege of having Anita Bertrand with us, who is not only an expert in nurse anesthesia, but also an advocate for provider and patient safety, as well as patient care and provider self-care. 
Anita is a wealth of experience in the field of diversion and substance use disorder, and she will share some of her insights, experiences, and incredible stories that will leave you fascinated and enlightened. So without further ado, let's get to know Anita Bertrand and explore the world of diversion and substance use disorder together. Anita, welcome to Anesthesia Alchemy, Terry and Gary Unplugged. We're thrilled to have you here with us today. Thank you for having me. And thank you, Gary, and a big welcome to our guest, Anita Bertrand. It's truly an honor to have you here with us, Anita. And Anita, before we delve into this fascinating world of nurse anesthesia diversion, could you please take a few minutes and, and share a bit about your background in nurse anesthesia with us? Your journey, experiences in the field are incredibly impressive and will provide our listeners with valuable context to this conversation. Of course, Terry, and thanks for having me on the show. My journey in nurse anesthesia has been quite an adventure. I started my career as a nurse, working diligently in various clinical settings, gaining valuable experience and knowledge along the way. However, it was during my time as a nursing student that I developed an interest in anesthesia and its transformative power in patient care. The idea of providing comfort and relief to patients while ensuring their safety was something that resonated with me on a profound level. And I decided that someday, that would be where my future in nursing would take me. So after 10 years as an ICU critical care nurse, that opportunity was availed to me to pursue a career in anesthesia. It was a big move, literally, because I had to pack my things, move my life to a new, new city, new state in order to further my education and training and to become a nurse anesthetist. Over the years, the last 20 years or so, I have had the privilege of working in a wide variety of healthcare settings from bustling urban hospitals to very rural clinics and rural hospitals. And I've had the opportunity to witness firsthand the incredible impact nurse anesthesia can have on patient outcomes. Wow, that's an incredible journey, Anita. Your dedication to the field and your diverse experiences undoubtedly make you a valuable voice in the world of nurse anesthesia. And I understand you're way down in Southwest Texas now, not too. The stones throw from San Antonio and the Riverwalk out there doing some anesthesia care in a critical access hospital, and obviously an important need in our profession. Well, thank you for that wonderful background, Anita and Terry. And now let's circle back to our main topic today, diversion in the profession of nurse anesthesia. So for those of you who might be new to this concept, let's do a quick recap from our prior episode. Now, diversion in nurse anesthesia is really special in the midst of care of the actual provider themselves. Now, nurse anesthesia experts in diversion, like Anita Bertrand, work closely with healthcare team members to ensure nurse anesthetists in recovery are on and stay on a pathway to success. Now, what makes this topic truly exciting today is that Anita is going to take us through a lived experience that she's had over the years specific to diversion and recovery. It's like a front row seat for our listeners here today. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Anita. Absolutely, Gary. In, and in this lived experience, I'll take you through a real life case where I had to confront diversion and find a path to recovery. We'll dive deep into the decision-making process, the challenges I faced, and the ultimate outcome. Yeah, you know, 
this is going to be interesting, and I think for those of you, and I want to pause for a minute, um, you know, we intentionally launched this podcast during this time of year around the holidays, Thanksgiving and the holidays across December, uh, because we're uh, definitely aware that there may be some of you in the audience, whether you're a nurse anesthetist or whether you're a healthcare provider um, or a family member that you know someone is in need. And uh, it can get a little tough this time of year. So, um, you know, I think um, hearing firsthand accounts like Anita's, uh, it's not every day that we get such an inside look into the world of diversion. And many times anesthesia practices uh, are taken by surprise because they have no process in place. Thank you, Gary and Anita. I must say this lived experience we're about to share will have us all on the edge of our seats. But before we delve into the details, I'd like to explore a crucial aspect of nurse anesthesia diversion with you, Anita. You know, as Gary stated, diversion in the world of anesthesia is unique and it's challenging. And there must be various elements that push a nurse anesthetist to consider diversion. Could, could you just take a second and shed some light on what leads a struggling CRNA into diversion? That's an excellent question, Terry. You know, diversion is indeed a path that CRNAs don't want to find themselves falling victim to, but it happens. It's not something I signed up for, actually, you know. I didn't really uh, want to be that expert in this field. However, um, there are several factors that can influence a nurse anesthetist's decision to pursue this path. Clearly, stress plays a role. Stress in one's personal life, one's family, one's work environment, care for a patient that has had a bad outcome or dies while under one's care. There's one point I do want to make here though, that most people do not understand. Even among many of those who have a wealth of knowledge and education, diversion in my experience is really not a path that a nurse anesthetist consciously decides to take. After all that hard work, that's involved in becoming a nurse anesthetist, I'm not aware of any nurse anesthetist that says, yep, I decided first and foremost that my career, in my career as a nurse anesthetist, diversion is something that I'll sign up for and experience. And that will make me a better care provider. No, <laughs> I don't think that this is on anybody's bucket list. So when it does happen and a nurse anesthetist finds him or herself in the midst of something that is as devastating as it is to one's career, one's family, your livelihood, and even your life itself, the individual is ill-prepared and ill-equipped to take the measures needed to make necessary life changes. It becomes all-consuming, and in spite of the desire to make a change, that change is typically not something the individual can do on his or her own. You know, uh, Anita, I'm so th so glad that you shared those, you know, really, and I think sometimes painful insights. And, um, you know, in the in the few times that, um, you know, I've encountered CRNAs that were in trouble with substance use disorder and uh, diversion, you know, to every, every single one of them was um, in the middle of some physical or emotional pain that made them vulnerable. Um, and made a bad choice. And, and substance use disorder has been described not a, a disease by choice, but a disease of loss of choice and compulsion that is irresistible. And so it's clear that diversion is a product of a CRNA confronting some harsh event 
uh, in life or the result of a second victim event, as you described, a patient dying in the OR um, and a, a critical incident uh, happening clinically. And I'm sure our listeners are gaining valuable insights into the motivations and the underpinnings behind this unique specialization. Anita, before we dive into the specifics of your, your own experience, let's take a moment to discuss the signs and the indicators that nurse anesthetists might encounter in the workplace which could lead them to consider diversion. Then with a better understanding of why, we can talk about the how. So tell us about your experience and how you navigated the challenges of diversion and recovery. And you've got this in incredible role model experience for those in recovery. And so, so take us through that if you can. Certainly, Terry. Um, it's crucial for nurse anesthetists to be vigilant and attentive to the evolving dynamics in their clinical workplace. Some signs that might suggest the need for diversion could include poor coping skills and a general inability to deal with one's stress or one's life situation, whether it be from home, from work, from or current health issues. The inability to get adequate rest, untreated or inadequate treatment for one's own pain or health issues or self-care in general. Sometimes we can be the worst at taking care of ourselves. All our energies are put towards helping others that we have nothing left to take care of ourselves. Part of taking care of ourselves is being mindful of one's own thoughts and feelings about things that are happening in our lives. In hindsight, I'm very aware of how my thinking had changed upon my return to work after having had a surgical procedure where I was exposed to a large dose of narcotic pain medication. A very clear black and white line that I knew to not cross became gray and eventually just disappeared. Recovery has taught me to be aware of my thoughts, thoughts that just come and I don't have any control over. Well, that is, well, that is actually an amazing, amazing disclosure. Thank you so much for sharing those important signs with us, Nita. It's clear that a nurse anesthetist must remain tuned to the, their own evolving needs, not just of the, their patients, but of themselves and what's going on in their clinical environment. Uh, your insights are just extremely invaluable in helping our listeners understand the nuances that lead nurse anesthetists to have that vulnerability uh, that graze that line, as you described, between the black and white choices um, and, and makes it tempting for a nurse anesthetist to divert and fall into substance use disorder. Yeah, I think, I think it's really underappreciated by many anesthesia providers uh, or healthcare providers for that matter. You know, so I want to thank you guys for shedding, you know, lights on the signs, uh, you know, Terry and Anita. And it's crucial for our listeners to really understand that the factors that might actually prompt a nurse anesthetist to consider diversion is sobering, uh, no pun intended. But, you know, I think one of the things that Terry and I have talked about on prior podcasts is to have a place, uh, plan in place uh, before something like this happens and be looking for those signs and symptoms. You know, uh, I remember when I first met Anita back in, oh God, I think it was 2009 at a, at a board meeting in, in Texas. And uh, one of my questions to her was like, for somebody like myself in a leadership role, like a chief CRNA, what are those things that I need to be acutely aware of 
and patterns to hopefully identify somebody before, you know, not just diversion, but, you know, we'll just put it on the table here, potentially committing suicide and uh, saving a life. And uh, that's the sobering reality of, of what our profession, with the ease of access to medications and stuff that we have, um, it's something we need to all be aware of and, and be able to identify. So, Anita, in your, ex, your extensive experience, uh, what are some of the common workplace issues or dynamics that could potentially contribute and lead a nurse anesthetist to consider diversion? What were those specific challenges that you perhaps maybe encountered that may have led you uh, in that direction um, back in your experience? Absolutely, Gary. Um, workplace issues and challenges can indeed be a catalyst for nurse anesthesia diversion. Some of the common factors that contributed to this decision might include long hours, the call time that we do, dealing with personalities of our work environment where everyone is required to do more with less, the demand for quick turnovers, the shortage of staff to help us out, dealing with critically ill patients, it's not guaranteed that all patients are going to do well in surgery and under anesthesia. And those incidences where unfavorable events and outcomes weigh heavily on us. And we just have to keep on going because, you know, they're knocking on the door. The next case is ready to go. So that's just the workplace stress. On top of all of that, we have family events, like family you know, issues, life events that become stressful nurse anesthetists become patients too. We have health issues that require medical care and we need to have surgery. And we need to take pain medicine for whatever medical or surgical uh, issue that we are having to deal with. Then we come back to work, dealing with all of these issues. And finally, last, but not certainly not the least, we have access to a lot of very potent and very addicting medications. We have to, it's just part of our job. And our job, you know, we have to have access to the medications in order to do our jobs and to, to do our jobs effectively. I've always wondered if I had not been a nurse or if I would not been a nurse anesthetist with access to these medications, you know, would I have gone down that path? Would that exposure to a large dose of narcotic been a non-event in my life? But because I'm a nurse anesthetist and I had access to the drugs, that's where things went. Yeah, it's, you know, thanks for sharing those uh, critical insights, Anita. I, I think that you know, it's gotten more and more complicated today, specifically in the, in the workplace. Uh, you know, you bring up production pressure, which, uh, you know, I, I'm adamant with my colleagues is you never, ever, even the circulating nurses in the OR that just want to keep push, push, push. And, I, and I'm like, you know, we're not going to succumb to, to production pressure because there's no good outcome. Uh, at some point you do fail, you do trip and, and, um, you get a bad outcome and then everybody's, you know, um, it's not good mojo, if you will. And uh, if there's no plan in place and how to manage stuff like that, uh, it spirals very quickly. And so, you know, workplace dynamics, uh, challenges that play significant roles in decision making, um, you know, often lead to, you know, coping or lack thereof 
to where nurse anesthetists then reach into the drawer and uh, start to divert in order to uh, to deal with some of the uh, you know the mental anguish that they're that they're experiencing. So your experiences and perspectives, you know, in the, in this area are just incredibly valuable. Now that we've got a little bit better understanding um, of what uh, can drive a nurse anesthetist towards diversion, I'm really eager to hear more about some of your experiences, not only navigating the challenges um, that have made a difference in, in your career as well as road to recovery, but, you know, um, I remember talking to you many times. We were at, a, I think you were a keynote speaker for the Jan Stewart uh, lecture in was in Florida in I think it was 2015 if I remember correctly and that I remember correct. yeah and I remember you and Juan Quintana and myself went to lunch and you shared some incredible stories that it certainly made my head spin and it just it's amazing um, you know the power of your talk and uh, your experience your life experiences in the profession have I'm sure made you much stronger but just an incredible advocate and resource for our nurse anesthetists in the community. So share with us a little bit more because I think people are very curious to learn how um, how dark it can get and um, the help that's needed and perhaps some of those experiences people um, will have raised awareness and be able to help others when they see or help themselves, obviously. You know, to your point, I think, People don't plan to do this. It's the lack of coping and, and lack of structure to help us negate that. So I'll turn it over to you, Anita. Okay. Well, one of the most important things that I've learned and use regularly now is to not take things so personally. It's part of human nature, I guess, to just think that we are in so much in charge of everything that's going on around us, when in reality, there are so many dynamics at play. You know, every person has a role. Every person has a has specific ideas and desires of how things should be done. It, it's like a tug of war, you know, at, in the job. So we have to pick our battles, so to speak. Or from from a new perspective, don't let yourself get in the battle. You know, um, accepting things as they are and working with it rather than fighting and competing. You know. Gary and Anita, I just, I just, I want to take just a second and, and and comment on what I'm hearing. And Gary, you know, as a leader and as a department director, um, it's our responsibility to make our team mm-hmm. successful and to look out for them. Yep. Um, and uh, as a provider, Anita, it's our responsibility to be true to ourselves and mm-hmm. to recognize, you know, what our internal environment is like based on the pressures that we're experiencing at work and not not fall victim uh, to believing that we cannot be human in the workplace. And so those those in those insights are critical. And you know, Anita, as we're talking about entry level into the profession and and things that we have to learn to be successful and healthy over the long term, you know, I'd like to touch on a topic that's particularly relevant for folks that are new to the nurse anesthesia profession or or maybe recently graduated who could be tempted 
uh, to delve into diversion. You know, for those for those fresh out of their training in NIDA programs, what are the most important contributors to diversion that students or new graduates should be aware of? You know, what are what are the pitfalls and the the vulnerabilities that they should be most aware of? And if you could uh, share your thoughts on the concept of second victim, because you mentioned earlier bad outcomes in the OR or maybe clinical mistakes that lead to a bad outcome and the impact that those can have on a, a new practitioner's journey in the profession. Terry, those are crucial aspects to consider, especially for new grads exploring nurse anesthesia diversion. When it comes to the most important contributors, I'd say that the following factors stand out. Number one, self-care. Care, like you mentioned, taking care of yourself as well as, and you know, that you are a patient as well. Put yourself first and get the rest you need, proper nutrition, take time out when necessary, you know, and take care of your own physical and mental health. So when in the care for other profession, we must take care of ourselves so that we're able to care for others. Know your limits and be okay with asking for help. You know, the dynamics are changing constantly in our work environments and being able to adapt to the changes requires a deep understanding of your role and our contributions and collaborating with others. Yeah, you know, and it's it's crucial to have a holistic perspective on the challenges and considerations involved, uh, specifically in diversion, because that's the, the kind of the segue from an acute event or maybe even a chronic event, if you will, whether that's personal or like Anita, you've, you've shared with us, uh, you know, something after surgery. I'd like to explore another aspect uh, that's really uh, immensely important, uh, both in our profession as well as life in general. And that is, and we've, we've alluded to it, coping mechanisms. So Anita, as someone with extensive experience in diversion and recovery, can you share some of those effective coping mechanisms that have helped you or colleagues that you may have helped when you find yourself facing significant challenges, either at work or dealing with personal life issues. And how did you navigate through those moments, um, through reflection and, and, and whatnot? Yeah, Gary, um, coping with the demands of nurse anesthesia practice and these critical events can indeed be challenging at times. And it is vital to have strategies in place to maintain your well-being so some of those coping mechanisms that I have learned that have proved effective for me is number one, pause, stop, take a breath. You know, so many times we don't have to take action right away about something that's going on. You know, in, in our profession, this is very critical because we're so used to taking quick and appropriate actions. You know, we see a situation and we know what we need to do and we take, take action. But when it comes to coping with all the things that are going on around us, it's okay to stop and take a breath. You know, I don't always need to do anything about something or I just need to let it go. Let it go. When, whether it's um, a life or death, when it's not a life or death situation, there's no need to respond right now. Whether that is in saying something or in doing something. And then secondly, accepting that I don't always have the answers. You know, I'm not, I'm not always the expert about everything. And so 
you know, being able to talk to someone about what's going on, getting advice from others, having a trusted individual to get feedback, you know, so that I have an appropriate response to a situation. And then this is a big one that I've had to do is accepting my failures. You know, this is huge. We're all human and I'm not perfect. And even though many of us think that maybe we are mm. <laughs> or that we have to be perfect. <laughs> yeah, good luck. That we have to be, <laughs> you know, we do the best we can, but we all make mistakes. So, but that fear of making a mistake or fear of allowing ourselves to be human causes an enormous amount of stress, you know, don't worry about what others think. You know, that was a tough one. You know, this was a concept that I learned very early in recovery and I try to follow it, but it's hard. It's none of my business what other people think, both of me or of my decisions and my actions. And, you know, second guessing myself, it just takes up too much time, too much energy and takes up all my reserves. So, you know, I just have to go about my day and do what I need to do and not worry about it. Yeah, those are excellent strategies, Anita. Self-care, open communication, mindfulness are all powerful tools for maintaining balance and resilience, especially in a demanding profession like ours in nurse anesthesia. So to our listeners out there, remember that seeking help and practicing self-care are not signs of weakness. And we've said this in the last podcast, and we're going to reinforce that uh, throughout all of these podcasts. But rather, these are signs of strength. It's crucial to prioritize your well-being. And that's pretty tough in our profession. Uh, But it's important to execute that, not only professionally, but personally. You know, Gary, I, I love that. And Anita, that what you said about it's none of my business what other people think about what I do, that is that is phenomenal. And we really need to put our arms around that and and recognize that we cannot be perfect. Uh, and there are days, and I tell my students, there are days I walk out of the OR and I wonder, I'm glad I don't have to tell this story every day, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, thank you for sharing those valuable coping mechanisms. I think they're so important. They're essential for maintaining one's well-being and mental health in this challenging field. Uh, and building on that theme of seeking support, let's talk a little bit more about the resources that are available to CRNAs who may be facing difficulties at work or in their personal lives. Anita, for CRNAs who find themselves needing assistance, what are some of the resources that they can turn to for help and support? You know, are there specific organizations or avenues that offer guidance and assistance during these challenging times? Yeah, Terry, it's essential for CRNAs to know that they're not alone and that help is available. There are several resources that they can turn to. First, our professional organization, the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists, offer support through member services. We provide access to educational resources, networking opportunities, and assistance for career development. Second, their employee assistant programs offer many healthcare institutions where individuals can find confidential counseling and support for personal and work-related issues. These programs are very valuable in times of need. Third, mental health resources and crisis helplines are available for anybody who needs assistance. It's crucial to recognize when professional help is needed, and these resources can be a lifeline in critical situations. 
going back to the professional organization, the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists, we do have peer support and we have people who are available to share their experiences and to help you help a CRNA who is struggling with getting the help that they need, rather it's just they need some mental health issues, they have some mental health issues that they need to deal with, or if they truly are in the in the circling the hole. <laughs> yep, the drain. Circling the drain, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> so, you know, we do, we do have people who are available to help you, help the CRNA get treatment and to get into recovery. And, you know, some of these facilities are developed specifically for CRNAs, by CRNAs, helping each other. And that's very important that all CRNAs know that there is support out there. You are not alone. And there are others that have walked down this path before you and can share their experiences and offer support to you. And that was huge for me in this process that uh, I was able to connect with other CRNAs in recovery, other CRNAs who had done the same thing that I did and who are, you know, steadily getting their lives back, putting things back on track and reaching out to help others. And, you know, it was such a joy for me to be able to be that person when somebody calls and says, you know, so-and-so had a problem, they, uh, the anesthesia group sent him to the ER and then just let him go. And this person is thinking about committing suicide. So, you know, to get that call and say, hey, where is he? Let me know where he's at, I'll meet him. And, you know, I was able to spend hours with him that evening talking to him and his fiance, you know, talking about the process, that there is a process in place and this is not a hopeless situation that you can work through this because many of us have. Yeah. And, you know, it's, uh, and again, thank you for, you know, pointing out those resources. And and I'll be honest, I, I talk to my students about the importance of mental well-being and, uh, and I'm very candid with them that I have been talking to a counselor myself about some, <coughs> some really bad experiences that I've had in the OR and very um, honest with them that when those things happen to them, they need to call on those resources that are available. They need to, be debriefed. They need to talk to someone, uh, both formally and certainly informally. So, yeah, it's it, it's really critical that nurse anesthetists be aware of, of their both their formal and informal support networks and all the resources that assistance are available to them, both in the broader organization and locally at the um, at the institution, the employee assistance programs that almost all organizations have. Uh, so again. Just as a reminder uh, to everyone that's listening, that seeking help is a sign of strength. It is not a sign of weakness. And there should be no shame or embarrassing embarrassment for reaching out when you need support, when you need someone to help you get through those tough minutes. Um, your well-being matters, matters to you, to your family, and to your patients. And these resources are here to help you navigate those challenges that you face as a nurse anesthetist in our profession and in life in general. Yeah, you know, thanks, Tara and Anita, for discussing, you know, these vital, you know, and this is just a component of these vital aspects to help, you know, people in need to to cope, but also support structures. And, and I'll add a little bit more to Anita's 
uh, you know, the peer assistance program, which is offered by the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists, also your state association, uh, whatever state you are in, there are typically some delegated peer assistance advisors there. Now, these are real live CRNAs. They work like you and I, but they've many have gone through that journey and um, will help you or if there's somebody you know, will help uh, navigate the processes. And, and we'll get to it here a little bit further, but I also want to highlight again, and I'm going to say this over and over, is most facilities where we practice anesthesia have no plan in place. And as we navigate through this, and we're going to pivot here in a minute, as to what is the process when somebody is identified for diversion? What are those steps that we have to take? Now, bear in mind, this is to save a life, right? This is somebody that needs help. Um, They're struggling. And so on that note, Let's shift our focus uh, to something that's a little bit more crucial, as I've said, for not only healthcare professionals, but organizations, and that includes nurse anesthetists. And let's take a look and discuss a little bit about the regulatory and professional consequences of nurse uh, anesthetists whom divert. So, Anita, if a CRNA were to contemplate or succumb to diversion, what are the processes that a state board of nursing Um, typically follows. And could you shed some light on the potential impact that such regulatory actions can have on a CRNA's career or professional life? Because, you know, I think in many instances, once a person makes that decision and executes the diversion, and let's just say if that goes on, whether it's a short or long period of time and they get caught, they think it's the end of the line. And I will tell you that there are many uh, nurses that don't know um, the process, and there are people in leadership that don't know the process, and um, it's not all doom and gloom. And so I'll turn it over to you, Anita, kind of share those sort of navigations with regulatory and, and whatnot. You're absolutely correct, Gary. You know, so many of our facilities, our workplaces have no idea what to do, and they see it maybe as this is a problem and they just want to pass it on. And it, it, that is not the case. And, and even nurses themselves don't know what to do for each other, to how to help somebody. So um, there are very clear things that need to be done to help somebody, especially when nurse anesthetists ha- identify so much with what their career, their career, you know, their identity is what they do as a live, you know, in a living. And, you know, it, it is, it's an awesome job. We do amazing stuff. And to have to think about that potentially being taken away from you is devastating. And so I, I, I can tell you for sure that that was one of the things that kept me in my disease for so long for that fear of what was going to happen. And you know, I kept putting it off thinking, okay, I'm going to manage this. I'm going to, I'm going to be able to stop and I'm going to do this on my own, you know, um, thinking that, okay, I can, I can just, you know, put it aside and walk away, you know, but that's not the case. There's no turning back. You know, once, once you've gone down that road, you know, there is a specific path that you can take and it is not the end of the world. It is 
does not have to be the end of the career, uh, providing people around us do the next right thing to help. And that's very crucial. Most states, and there's, I, I don't know the number, but there's only a few that don't have a uh, alternative to discipline program so that the CRNA who is caught in diversion and has a substance use disorder, they have the most states and boards of nursing understand the disease and the states have put in place a program that will help you to get treatment, get into recovery and to get back into your career, providing you meet all of the requirements in these programs. And when those programs are followed, you do not have to, you do not necessarily have a record that you have that's going to follow you from one job to the other. Now, not all states have these. There's just a few states that don't. But uh, in the event that there is not an alternative to discipline program, then there's an investigation by the Board of Nursing. Uh, let me just go back one minute here. When there is an alternative to discipline program, what is important is that the CRNA reports themselves to this alternative to discipline program and gets themselves enrolled in the program before an outside entity or a third party <coughs> reports them either to the alternative to discipline program or to the board of nursing. Your outcomes will be so much greater for your career if you self-report and do what's necessary once you've been caught, okay? And uh, so it's, it's um, essential to know that particular uh, aspect. So when the Board of Nursing does an investigation, you know, this process usually includes, um, you know, going through the evidence and interviewing colleagues, interviewing supervisors and other CRNAs in that position. You know, those things don't have to happen if the CRNA is willing to go get treatment you know, admit to it, go get treatment, then all of that investigation stuff, you know, gets put on the back burner because they understand this is you are this CRNA is uh, has a disease and needs help rather than punishment. However, you know, in the midst of our disease, sometimes we can't make good decisions. And, you know, we want to fight the accusations. And so therefore, we're not willing to go get treatment. And so then the board will do an investigation. Occasionally, a CRNA may be let go from a facility and then has to wait for the board to investigate and catch up with them. And I don't know about other states, but I know the state of Texas, it takes a little while for the state board to catch up with you. So the risk there is that that CRNA can go about and get another job somewhere else and go back into practice and be in the midst of, uh, you know, having access to drugs again. And, you know, that is a very critical time because, you know, uh, as, I've, as was mentioned, suicide is a huge risk. And so if somebody has been let go from a job, but, has, but no measures have been taken to help that person to get into treatment, then that person is on their own. And, you know, and that's a very dangerous place. So, one of the key components of helping each other is to not let that CRNA go by themselves. You know, somebody being with that CRNA and actually escorting them to treatment. 
and making sure that they get put in a safe place before something happens. You know, there was a point in my in my disease that um, I, I knew I was going down the rabbit hole and I knew the outcome wasn't going to be good. But, you know, all that fear and shame and guilt was keeping me from asking for help. So I carried around some some uh, midazolam and some rocuronium and a 10 cc syringe, 10 cc syringe so that I could pull it all up together and inject, oh, God. you know, if I, if I was in that place where I was going to get caught. Fortunately, you know, I don't even, you know, by the, the grace of a higher power, you know, I removed those things from my pocket on the day that, you know, before I got caught. So when my employers took me to treatment and sat with me until I was actually admitted, I remember sitting in the waiting room thinking, oh, my gosh, I could have just gone in the bathroom and just gotten over with this. And, you know, I would have had that midazolam and that rocky rhodium. You know, there was a moment that, you know, that was a first thought that came in my mind. But, you know, later it was I very much appreciated that some higher power, you know, guided me to take those things out of my pocket. So I didn't have access to them at that moment. So, you know, making sure that the CRNA is escorted to a safe place, whether that is with an, um, a colleague or a family member making sure that they get admitted to a facility to get some help. So if the board finds evidence that there is diversion, of course, license suspension, probation, mandatory treatment and um, education, all these things are will happen. And you know, those things can have a very significant impact on our career. So, you know, that those are the things that the CRNA fears the most is what's going to happen to them in their career. And as CRNA is working with the colleague who is diverting, that's the last thing that we need to be thinking about. The first thing the colleagues need to be thinking about is how can I save this person's life? because that person is not able to ask for help themselves because there's so much fear, there's so much stigma surrounding the events of what's happening that they're not able to ask for help and they rely on each other. They rely on the rest of us to identify them and get them into help. I'm so grateful for the people who helped me to get treatment and, um, you know, it's not just career and professional consequences. Sometimes some facilities, depending on how severe the diversion is, there can be criminal charges and there can be uh, criminal consequences. And so um, facing those legal repercussions um, and criminal charges are very detrimental. And but they are they can be a consequence of diversion. So. You know, it's paramount that we help each other, that we look after each other and help the, the CRNA who's diverting to get into treatment, to get help for themselves. Rather, going to jail is not going to make their life any better, you know, but getting to treatment is what is necessary. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for explaining, you know, those processes, Anita. Um, and thankfully, whatever that was, higher power um, that caused you to not um, take that next step, because there have been some. 
Uh, and it's not limited to a long practicing CRNA. There, uh, you know, during my presidency for AANA uh, in 2019, um, there was a student couple that committed suicide. Um, you know, and and I had a colleague of mine uh, that was in the program, was struggling in the program, graduated. Uh, we really didn't think that individual would pass the certification exam, but somehow they did. And, uh, you know, I ran into them about two years later. They were working on the north side of Houston. And I'm like, oh, great, good. You know, it looks like they're doing fine. And, uh, you know, they've navigated whatever those challenges were, whether it was, you know, just workplace environments, etc. cetera. Uh, so I go to the national meeting um, two days later. And I get a phone call um, from one of my colleagues, and they're like, do you remember this uh, individual that used to be a student? And I'm like, yeah. And uh, they proceed to tell me, well, they found her in a hotel room in Austin, uh, committed suicide with rocuronium and propofol. And I was, I was like floored, um, because to make that decision, it's very easy to do when you're don't have any coping skills at this point, you're exhausted and you feel that there's nowhere to turn. And that is 100% false. You know, I think you brought up something also that was really important to need is, is the stigma. And we need to get past this uh, stigma and sort of shunning of, of our peers and recognize um, uh, an individual that's in need because if they don't get the help, um, there is the possibility of suicide being the end result, which um, we never want to see for anybody. So, uh, you know, it, it's critical for CRNAs as well as all healthcare providers be aware of these potential, you know, legal ramifications as well as professional ramifications uh, that you've outlined, uh, uh, certainly uh, with respect to diversion. You know, and for our listeners, always remember that maintaining you know, ethical and professional standards is paramount, uh, you know, in our line of work, seeking support and help when needed. And I'll also say, you know, uh, as far as peers is trying to recognize those signs and symptoms and reaching out to an individual that looks like they're struggling um, and navigate them through, you know, as, as Anita said in Texas, which in many other states too, there is a peer assistance self-reporting program that's, uh, you know, in parallel with the state boards of nursing. And if you self-report, it's a heck of a lot easier. You got to go through the steps. Um, there's no fooling anybody and more specifically, no fooling yourself. Um, but you can make it through if you're struggling. Um, self-report is, is one of those first steps and it's, optimal um, for those states that actually have those programs. So never hesitate to make the right choice, everyone. Um, you know, your well-being for yourself as well as your patients is critical. And so, uh, you know, we're all human and uh, we need each other and um, we need to support each other and, and not get into these stigma patterns of, of individuals that need help and are ill. We need to get them help as quickly as possible. We sure do. And, you know, um, a couple of things that um, Gary and Anita have touched on that I think are really important is the um, the avenue of seeking self-help and, and getting into an alternative treatment program uh, versus getting caught and being dismissed and forced uh, into the legal system, which is an entirely 
undesirable pathway, both personally and professionally. So, you know, Anita, what are some of the things that healthcare institutions, organizations, and regular bo- regulatory bodies can do to strike a balance between, you know, addressing the obvious legal issues with taking drugs that don't belong to you and giving them to yourself instead of patients, and the the manifestations of a disease over which the individual has very little or no control. So what are the what are what are things that institutions and regulatory bodies can do to strike that balance of getting folks um, back into recovery and back into practice uh, and get them that necessary help? Terry, you've touched uh, a very complex and sensitive aspect of nurse anesthesia diversion. It's indeed a challenging conundrum. When a CRNA is struggling with substance use disorder due to diversion, some of the key challenges include, like we have talked about, getting help for yourself without causing more harm. When a person has succumbed to substance use disorder, the brain has been hijacked by the disease in such a way that survival depends on that drug diversion. As much as oxygen is needed for breathing, the drug becomes oxygen. So actions taken to obtain the drug diversion are means of survival as opposed to bad behavior. And in the midst of substance abuse, the individual will do things they normally would not do. Often these things, like we've talked about, have legal ramifications. And so as colleagues and institutions, understanding this concept that this is not a bad person doing bad things, this is a good person who is ill and they need help. So, you know, it's counterintuitive because, you know, when there's legal issues, we think that there needs to be legal consequences, but that's not going to help the CRNA to move on in life, you know, whether it's in the career of anesthesia or whether it's somewhere else, you know, focusing on saving somebody's life. And, um, you know, I'm so grateful for those individuals who intervened on me in the midst of my disease and understood that the behavior, finding me unconscious in a car with bottles of propofol, you know, that was that didn't, I didn't need to go to jail for that. I needed to go to treatment. And I'm so grateful that the people I was, that I worked with understood that and made arrangements so that I could go to treatment instead. Yeah, that is an, it's an amazing phenomenon when you think about it, the, the dichotomy of how we typically think of disease and a personal approach to managing an illness versus an illness that takes us over and takes away our choice and takes away self-determination. And as you said, leads us to do things that on, you know, on a logical level, uh, endanger our lives and, and uh, endanger the health of our patients. So, you know, it's clear that uh, substance use disorder is a, a disease that requires treatment that's both nuanced and compassionate, uh, that balances legal accountability with the need for treatment and rehabilitation and support. Uh, so, for our listeners, it's crucial to remember that addiction is a health condition. It is a disease. And for those who are affected by it, you know, they need our understanding and support and help. 
an opportunity to get on the road to recovery and to get back, uh, get their lives and their brains back. Yeah, you know, thanks, Tara and Anita, for for kind of raising you know those levels of awareness and insights on you know what is really a challenging topic. I think for many to even just have a discussion about, uh, you know. Once a facility gets attorneys involved, it gets a little off the rails and doesn't really focus on what's needed. And, uh, you know, it's got a whole bag of mixed emotions and stuff. So now, Anita, if you're comfortable, I'd like to ask if you'd share your personal journey with diversion and recovery. Your experiences can offer hope, guidance, and inspiration to our listeners who may be going through similar challenges. Now, Anita, would you be willing to Take us through your journey, the path that led you to diversion, and then that process for recovery, because I think it's very powerful, and what lessons you learned along the way, and how have these experiences shaped your perspective on this incredibly critical issue that we all need to be aware of? Absolutely, Gary. A few months ago, I shared my story with students at one of the programs in Houston, and you know, sharing my story now is, it's like, it's a different, it's a different person. You know, I don't recognize that person because, you know, that's not me now, but I definitely um, need to be reminded on a regular basis of where things went. So I don't go there again, you know? So um, I, I'm, I'm happy to share some of my journey. So, um, because, you know, this journey is what's made me who I am today. And recovery now is a significant part of my life. So, you know, it began with this profound interest in anesthesia care. And, um, you know, I learned about this risk and the incidences of diversion while I was in training for anesthesia. And, you know, I, I think I was a little cocky about it because I, I was very confident. I'd been a nurse for 10 years and I knew better. I knew, you know, that that, that line was very black and white. And I knew that um, I, I would not cross that line. So, and I had very clear directions on what actions needed to be taken when you're administering medications to patients and and especially the, the controlled substances, what to do if you have extra. So, you know, I, I understood those policies and that was very clear to me on what I needed to do. So there was a point in my career that I became the patient and I had to have surgery. And in the process of um, managing my procedure, I was given an extremely large dose of narcotic and an epidural for post-op management. Unbeknownst to me, the administration of this narcotic kind of flipped that switch in my brain, you know, so it triggered those neuropathways um, that are commonly stimulated with addiction. So, you know, I was addicted before I even knew it. You know, I, uh, in my post-op course, the epidural was taken out. Uh, I was discontinued and I went home to recover and returned back to work two weeks later. In hindsight, while I was in treatment and thereafter, I re realized that what had happened within, you know, just days, maybe even hours of returning back to work, 
I realized my thinking changed. You know, my thought process changed from straight up wasting the drugs, anything that was left over to thinking, wait, maybe, maybe I might need some of those. Maybe I'll just save these just in case. And, you know, today I'm like, where did that come from? That was never part of my thought process prior to my surgery and prior to returning back to, to work after the surgery. So, you know, I started holding on to those leftover narcotics in a syringe and, you know, then drawing up my narcotics in divided syringes and then drawing up an unreasonable amount of narcotic for the case that I was scheduled to do so that, you know, I would have lots of extra to take care of for, for myself. You know, I wasn't going through any, I, I wasn't having pain. You know, I recovered very well from my procedure and there was no need for me to take narcotics. And I think back wondering, you know, where did this come from? But like I said, that pathway had been triggered and I was off to the races. You know, it didn't help that, um, you know, my family history of alcoholism was kind of uh, hanging in the background there. So three weeks after returning to work, I went on a vacation with my family. Um, I took two weeks off. And I remember on the return flight from our trip, thinking to myself, okay, I've been gone for two weeks now. I shouldn't have to do this anymore. You know, um, I was adamant, you know, I don't want to do this. I knew that in that short three-week period, between returning to work and going on vacation, I was diverting and taking drugs home every day. It didn't take long. And so I'm like, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm gonna go back to work. I'm gonna stop. This is it. I've been gone for two weeks. You know, um, but that's not the way things happened. I arrived in, I driving into work in the morning. I'm not gonna do this. I'm not gonna do this. I'm drawing up drugs from a patient and, you know, the first day, second day, I'm back to the same thing, drawing up my medications and divided syringes and, you know, doing that same behavior. And this continued on every day, praying, I'm going to stop, I'm going to stop, I'm going to stop. And then once I got to work, I couldn't, I couldn't not use, I couldn't not divert drugs. It, you know, it was beyond my control. So, you know, this de determination to stop and then not being able to led to a daily self-deprecating thoughts every night. No matter how determined I was to continue, it, it's just everything continued in the same manner. It was a living hell to survive. The fear of getting caught, the fear of what would happen if someone else discovered and the other, the utter loathing of myself because of what I was doing. And on top of that, the inability to commit suicide for fear of leaving my two-year-old daughter without a mother. You know, the use of drug at that point became an escape from my thoughts, an escape from what was going on in my life. The only way I could shut that down was a nice little dose of propofol to go off to sleep. And this cycle continued on for 
about six months with the narcotic. But then once I got to a point where I just wanted to shut my brain down, it didn't take very long after using propofol to be found unconscious in my car parked next to the anesthesiologist I was working with. And when I came to, you know, he was talking with my husband and my husband had stayed home from work that day. And for whatever reason, had had arranged for um, an interventionist to come in and get me off to treatment. So he already had me pre-admitted because the night before I had used at home with propofol and he had discovered, you know, all of that. So I am so grateful for those intervent those people who intervened in my life. And, you know, it wasn't just individuals that were intervening in my life to save my life. There was a power much greater than any of us that worked in that capacity as well. Because when I went back to thank the anesthesiologist for his compassionate care of me that day, he told me, he said, Anita, I never park on that side of the building. I come from a different direction and I always park on the other side of the building. I have no idea why I was parked next to you. And of course I told him, I, I know why, because you saved my life. So my husband had arranged for me to go off to treatment. So he took me home that night and um, stayed with me. And I flew off to treatment the next day. I spent probably about four months in patient treatment facility and um, after, after that, I came home, got acclimated to a recovery program at home, um, actually had some, because of the AANA uh, peer assistance program, I got involved online with the group, sharing my story and, and others supporting me in my journey to recovery. So I had that contact with other CRNAs who have been through this process during that time. I was required to stay out of work for at least a year, according to the Texas Peer Assistance Program for Nurses. Um, I was not permitted to work in anesthesia. I could, however, obtain a job as an RN working in a facility. And um, like I said before, my daughter was two, my husband was working, and I decided to just take that year off and focus on recovery and take care of my child and build that foundation for recovery. And so um, I took that year off, went to meetings, um, followed through with the Te Texas Peer Assistance Program for nurses, uh, doing the requirements, doing the drug screens, and, you know, just uh, working the program and, and taking care of myself. And when it got close to a year out of work, the program, you know, permitted me to start looking for a job. And that was very, that was very daunting. Oh my gosh. You know, because I couldn't just go apply for a job. I had to tell them what's going on, why I've been out of work for a year and what was happening. And, you know, so um, as I'm working the, my recovery program, I came to the conclusion that, you know, if this was meant for me to go back to work, then something will work out. But I have to just go through the steps. And I walk through those steps of applying, interviewing, getting turned down, applying, interviewing, getting turned down. But, um, you know, it's a numbers game. You do enough applications, you do enough interviews, eventually you're going to find somebody who's willing to give you a chance. And that's exactly what happened. 
and I had um, amazing support in this facility. It was a small facility um, where there was actually other people in recovery. And so I had that support and, you know, and I continued in that monitoring program with uh, the Texas Peer Assistance Program for Nurses. And I tell you, you know, drug testing is something that um, is a hot issue, but I am so thankful for that drug testing because that saved my butt in that initial return back to anesthesia, you know, knowing that I would be tested at some point and and I was getting tested weekly. So there was no amount of negotiating how I was going to be able to manage getting, getting by. Eventually I knew I would get caught if I picked up the, the syringe again. So, you know, I was so grateful for all of those accountability things that were in my life working with a sponsor in recovery program, working the steps and um, working with the peer assistance program, all of those things, you know, getting that paper signed, going to meetings and getting that paper signed. You know, I, I always said that the Texas peer assistance program had me getting that paper signed long enough so that I eventually realized how much I needed to have that paper signed and how much I wanted to, to be in those meetings and how much, how important those were in not only saving my life, but safe and saving my career as well. So, you know, I eventually found that support and was able to return to anesthesia and, you know, it was a struggle, but it was a struggle that was well worth it, very much worth it. So, you know, if anyone thinks that this is insurmountable, it's not, it's not, it's very difficult in those moments, just like anything that we go through, it's always hard to get through it. But when we get on the other side, we're stronger for it. And I'm really grateful for everything that happened along the way that provided safety measures, provided accountability and provided support so that um, not only was I able to return to anesthesia? I was able to continue being a mom and continue being a friend and a wife and um, continue the relationships. And now, you know, I get to help others along the way. And it's been amazing to have those opportunities to share my story, not only in in a environment where you know, we're, we're educating and teaching each other, but in a one-on-one situation with another person who thinks that they can't get through this and to be an example, to show them that the work will pay off. Just keep working at it. So Anita, I remember back, uh, 2015 when we were in Florida, when, um, incoming president Juan Quintana and myself and, and yourself, we went to lunch and you shared, um, a real sobering story um, during um, your period of, of substance abuse um, before um, getting the help needed. I'm just wondering, you know, it's, I think, for those listeners out there, understanding the gravity of where diversion and substance use disorder can take you. And these are the types of things... Uh, including um, suicide, uh, which we've kind of alluded to, but maybe Anita, share that story that you shared with Juan and I, because I think it's 
It's very powerful, um, and it it hopefully will open uh, a number of eyes uh, to those that are listening to this podcast. Yeah, Gary, you know, I don't want to make light of it. And in sharing this, um, I'm not doing so, but I, you know, want to share how this disease will take everything that we know, takes all of our knowledge and our experience and uses it against us. So in the midst of my disease, um, it was very common for me to have an IV somewhere. And, you know, of course, not in the arms anywhere, but, you know, it was easy to, to hide an IV um, in the ankle covered up with a sock. So, you know, I had gotten to that place where I just wanted to shut my head down because I couldn't, I couldn't ask for help. I could not stand what I was doing. And I loathed myself for what I was doing. And, but I had to get through each day. And so it was very common for me to go park my car after I've left work, go park my car somewhere. And I would use propofol in my car. And, uh, and then when I would wake up from that use, then I would drive home. So in one incident, I was driving home after having done all those things. And at some point, I don't remember um, I, I lost consciousness and I went through an intersection in downtown Houston and um, hit another car at a light. And I came to after the police were there, the ambulance was there. And, you know, apparently they had, um, they knew I was unconscious or maybe they came to talk to me or I became conscious when they initially came over to talk to me. And I saw all this happening and I knew I still had that IV in my ankle. And so um, because I'd hit my steering wheel uh, and probably had broken a rib, I had a heart. I couldn't reach down and get that hip lock out of my ankle. So, you know, took my shoes off and with my legs, with my other foot, was able to get that uh, out of my ankle. And, you know, I saw all the propofol vials on, on the floor um, around my feet. And so, you know, I was steadily trying to get all of those bottles hidden under the car seat, all of the paraphernalia hidden under the car seat so that when, if the police did look in my car, they wouldn't see anything. And at some point, you know, I was able to convince them or I told them I was okay. And, you know, they of course gave me a citation and, my husband was there and my car had been totaled. So um, they were going to take, they were, the records were there and they were going to drive off with the car. So I got a few things out of the car that I needed. And in the process of, of getting out, um, I realized that, that I probably had broken a rib and I didn't know what else was wrong. And, and so they encouraged me to go to the emergency room. So my husband took me to the emergency room and in the emergency room, you know, um, I was able to talk my way through everything. The nurse did see blood on my ankle, but for the most part, I had cleaned most of it off and they never questioned it. And it wasn't apparent that I had had an ID in that ankle or maybe it was, and the nurse just didn't say anything. They took me to get x-rays and you know, sure enough, I had broke a rib and had um, bruised um, my iliac crest, but otherwise everything else was okay. 
And, you know, I was able to walk out of that emergency room and there were no consequences other than um, a traffic ticket uh, from that incident. You know, that was a situation where I should have been killed or I should have been taken off to jail. And neither of those things happened. But, you know, the this disease will take everything that we know and use it against us. And I just was lucky to walk away. And I'm really grateful that um, the things didn't happen to me that could have happened. Um, but, you know, but for the grace of God, there, there I go um, on to another situation until I was eventually caught. But those kind of things are going to happen until, until somebody stops. Because as I have said before, I was not able to stop myself. And even in all of those, in that whole scenario, there wasn't an outside entity that caused any kind of consequences that stopped me in this disease. And so I went back to work the next day and with a rental car and continued on. Wow. Broken rib and all. Yeah. I mean, what's amazing though is, you know, in hindsight, obviously is 2020, but had an organization have, you know, mechanisms in place um, knowing the process that if someone is diverting and needs help, like you're, you're asking for help in your own way, but taking it in your hands, mm-hmm. which is not healthy. And, um, we know that when we're not diverting, but, you know, I think when you finally start to, as we said earlier, circle the drain, um, there needs to be catch points and, yeah. Yeah. You know, having a well-constructed program and framework, and, and again, I'll, I'll go back to the AANA, or American Association of Nurse Anesthetists Resources, has all of that stuff in a packet. You know, the signs and symptoms, what to look for from a, a leader's perspective, a co-worker's perspective, what is peer support, what are those numbers, what is a policy that needs to be in place in organizations, when you identify somebody, what are those steps that need to be executed immediately? And you've alluded to some of that is that when someone is identified that they need to be escorted directly to inpatient facilities. And I've, I've listened to people all over the country and it's been all over the map. And, and a lot of this stuff is this fear of, of litigation and wherever that comes from, I have no idea, but, um, you know, somebody that needs help, people need to circle around that individual and help them, you know, and um, mm-hmm. so that it isn't going through an intersection and, and you know, thankfully, you know, everybody is uh, is safe, um, but it could have been a lot different, right? And, and I think if we had the framework in place, that perhaps that never, ever would have occurred. And, and so, again, reinforcing of... of you know, having frameworks in place in the work environments, educating on a frequent basis, not, you know, every two or three years. It needs to be annual. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so that people realize that, uh, you know, um, it's a disease uh, that we've pointed out um, frequently in this podcast and um, that uh, we need to help these individuals. Anita, thank you so much for your courage and openness and sharing your personal journey. Wow. I mean, I'm speechless right now. 
it definitely is a is a testament to the strength of the human spirit as you've outlined and possibilities of recovery and renewal even in the face of adversity so you know to our listeners remember that seeking help is a sign of strength and we've said this over and over and there's hope and support available um if you or someone you know is facing similar challenges to anita um, related to diversion and anita's journey is is proof that recovery is possible there is a path forward to a healthier and happier life and at this time of year especially um, you know these can trigger negative thoughts around the holidays so to all of you that are listening if you are feeling down please seek the resources we've discussed and we'll add them in the podcast uh, online also to get you help or a peer of yours that needs help and this isn't limited to just nurse anesthetist this is anybody wow well you know gary like yourself um I'm I'm nearly speechless, and you know that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Uh, but you know, Anita, I am just so amazed at your story, and I'm I'm so grateful that you're, you know, able to you know to share that with us. Your personal journey has obviously been one that's filled with challenges and and great successes, and it's truly an inspiration to know you know how you've overcome some of these challenges and and clearly embraced your own recovery but uh you know you are also a um an example for others to follow and your story is a testament to resilience and and positive transformation that can still occur despite um, a difficult journey so as you taking the next step if we could just take a minute i want to wonder if you could anita just talk about uh some things that uh, can be done proactively, uh, resources that might be available, processes that should be followed that could help you or others avoid falling into diversion, if you know what some of those things might be. Terry, that is a critical question. And um, I believe that there are some proactive measures that indeed would can and would make a difference. If I had to highlight three things, uh, the first thing I've already mentioned is drug testing. That deterrent, knowing and fearing that I might have to test, you know, I wonder if that would have maybe stopped or been a second thought in that initial process of diversion, like, okay, no, I can't do this because that I might get picked for testing. You know, at the time, in none of the facilities that I worked in had any kind of um, program in place for drug testing. And... I know that um, there's a lot of issues around that um, for drug testing, but when it comes to making that decision to divert, their drug testing is something that's between the thought and the action. And that's what I didn't have. I had the thought, the thought led to the action. And drug testing is, you know, a block to that action if it's very well known that it's gonna happen in the workplace. So, you know, because the once you're active in that disease and diverting regularly, being selected to test or getting caught sooner would have ended that hellish existence that I had. You know, if somebody does start to divert and, you know, there is a regular program of drug testing in place, then, you know, that 
having a positive test could possibly save somebody's life or get them into treatment earlier, sooner. I know for a fact that that random testing weekly upon my return to anesthesia was a huge deterrent to keep me from going down that path again. I knew I had that genetic predisposition and, you know, that had not been an issue in my previous years as a nurse, but that exposure and um, could have been something that, could that exposure have been something that could have been avoided? As CRNAs, do we think about those kind of things when you're having a procedure? You know, we see patients, um, response to the medications that we give. And, you know, when we're stressed out and we see uh, the response from those patients feeling good and, you know, not having any cares. So that kind of is, uh, you know, when somebody is thinking about it, those kind of things in the workplace can be triggers to add to the decision, so be it, to divert. So education is huge talking about this, having these kind of podcasts, talking to students, you know, in training, even talking to workplace environment, having having a social get together and um, talking about diversion and letting, if once the workplace environment has a plan in place, letting people know what that plan is so that others can, um, you know, let them know there's a plan in place if you have an issue or if you suspect something, you know, talking to those that are in charge to, you know, come up with a plan to either discover or um, help that person. You know, it is not a taboo topic. We need to talk about it. We need to be continue to educate people. Um, You know, we forget, we go about our day, we continue to practice in anesthesia and we don't have any issues come up. And so we forget. And then all of a sudden, boom, it happens and nobody knows what to do. Most important is that the knowledge of what to do has been shared with the group so that somebody doesn't go talk to that person individually, because that is the, that is um, the threat. That is a threat to survival. If, if somebody was approached by another CRNA, just a colleague and said, Hey, you know, you know, what are, what's going on here? Of course, talking about support is excellent, but addressing the issue with substance abuse, if you suspect somebody is not something that should be done on a one -one one-on-one basis the person should be brought um, in a safe environment with people that they're safe with and having that disclosure and having a plan in place for someone to be uh, helped, whether it's treatment or the family um, setting up a, a plan of action to get this person off to treatment. Yeah. You know, those are, um, those are incredibly important things. And I, I just want to, to highlight each of them again, uh, Anita, you've done a great job talking about those things. Number one, testing. I entered the anesthesia profession uh, while I was in the military. And there was, I think they called it Operation Golden Flow, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which which now I think about it makes sense. But, you know, in the military, the anesthesia people were tested on a regular basis. Uh, and you knew that was going to happen and probably once or twice a year. 
and I think you know, Art Zwirling was was a tremendous, tremendous proponent of education uh, right out of the gate for for nurse anesthesia students about the risks of um, substance abuse and, and diversion uh, in the profession. And so to your point, I think, you know, educating people not only about the risk, but the procedures uh, that are in place to to help prevent that. And then, um, as you said, uh, a knowledge about what needs to be done uh, with an intervention. And Art said that, I thought this was great, uh, an intervention is not an adventure for amateurs. You know, <laughs> it's really something that needs to be very structured with expert resources uh, brought to bear uh, and done in a safe place. Uh, and again, as you said, never leave the individual alone. Uh, so it's so important uh, that uh, that you know we get this information out. And so together, you know, we can work towards you know building a better, safer healthcare system for our providers that prioritizes well-being and offers the support that's needed to prevent diversion, make it a never event. And uh, when it does occur, to constructively manage those resources. And you said the most important thing is to save lives. Hey, CRNAs, it's time to simplify your continuing education. Welcome to CRNAeducation.com, your trusted provider for CPC core modules and a plethora of Class A CE credits. You can explore 43 detailed articles covering various anesthesia topics, all from your favorite device, anytime, anywhere. And with over 40 pharmacology CE credits, meet your state board requirements effortlessly. Whether you need a few credits or everything to recertify, we have what you need. Just complete your credits online without any subscriptions or recurring charges. You can trust in our 100% CRNA-owned platform, established in 2011, ensuring you receive the best in customer service and educational content. Ready to learn? Go to crnaeducation.com, making continuing education easy and accessible. And don't forget that support is always a quick email or a text or phone call away. To sign up and learn more, just go to crnaeducation.com. Your path, though challenging, serves as a powerful reminder that uh, help and support are available. And we hope this is resonating uh, with those that are listening uh, and maybe facing similar struggles or someone that may know a colleague that's facing similar struggles. So building on that experience, Anita, let's focus a little bit on providing our listeners with perhaps what I would sort of coin as proactive resources, uh, given that's one of the intentions of this podcast. And so for our CRNAs, and I would even say, whether it's CRNA leaders or other uh, leaders in healthcare organizations, that want to ensure that there is a mechanism so that, uh, you know, a healthcare provider, let's just, you know, expand that a little bit, never reach the point of diversion. So what do you uh, see as maybe the top resources that need to be available to help uh, perhaps someone that's in need or um, for organizations or leaders that they need to be aware of for programs for implementation? Maybe describe a few of those processes for accessing and utilizing some of these resources. Gary, it's crucial to empower CRNAs and other healthcare providers with tools they need to proactively maintain their well-being and avoid diversion. Those resources can assist them in this journey. The most important ones are wellness programs 
and support services that many healthcare institutions and professional organizations like the AANA have in place for counseling, for stress management workshops, any kind of resource that teaches us to how to maintain our work-life balance is so important. Peer, assist, peer support networks and mentoring programs can be invaluable. Um, connecting with experienced colleagues who have navigated similar challenges can provide guidance, encouragement, and a sense of community. That is so important. And it was um, so welcoming to have that support when I returned back to Houston and was struggling to just live from day to day. You know, that the stigma, the guilt, the shame is so great. I remember just being afraid of running into somebody at the grocery store that knew me and that knew the, knew the path that I had gone down and, you know, was so full of, of fear of having to have that conversation with somebody. But other CRNAs who had been through this path, through this journey prior was a welcoming um, resource for me to help me to navigate from day to day. Ongoing education and training to recognize the signs of stress, burnout, and substance use disorder. They're, those are paramount. You know, we, we tend to forget, get comfortable where we're at doing, you know, the continuing education for our career. But how often do we take the time to do continuing education for health and wellness and self-care and meditation and you know, dealing with our stress and burnout. CRNAs need to prioritize their own mental health and their emotional health above all and everything else. Because if we cannot, if we're not healthy in those regards, then we are no good for our patients and it's going to be detrimental in the work environment. Yeah. Thanks, Anita, for outlining those essential resources and processes that, uh, not only the CRNA, but, you know, I think organizations at large, so leaders um, that are in the role to really providing some oversight and some support. You know, it's clear that proactive measures and supportive networks do go a long way in preventing diversion and fostering that healthy and resilient CRNA community that we're looking for. So, you know, again, to our listeners, and I know we keep, we keep beating this drum, um, but it's intentional, right? Please remember, seeking help and utilizing any of these resources that are available is definitely a sign of strength, not weakness. And so your well-being is paramount. And these tools are here to support you on your journey to fulfilling and, and leading a successful career in the nurse anesthesia profession. Anita, Gary and I talked last week a little bit about how substance abuse disorder and diversion and second victim phenomenon are not just um, problems for the individual to face, but they extend uh, beyond the individual and uh, touch on their families and co-workers. Uh, so, you know, could you maybe shed a little bit of light about how diversion might affect those around the CRNA who's having the problem? Uh, what steps should organizations or departments take to address co-workers' concerns and support families when when folks are uh, have been discovered to be diverting and are in treatment uh, and, and on their recovery journey? 
Yeah, Terry, these are very crucial aspects. My experience was not a positive one in that in that realm um, because, you know, coworkers and family members are at a loss and they don't know what to do. And um, so, you know, when it came to my colleagues, um, I had a few colleagues that, you know, would keep in touch with me and and call me. But for the most part, you know, I felt very isolated from my profession because of what had happened. You know, when somebody has a heart attack and is off work, you know, flowers are sent to their home and and uh, people are always calling and checking on them. But, you know, I did not get those phone calls. I did not get any flowers delivered to me because I was having a health crisis, you know, and and so I was very much alone. So, you know, being able for the, the group that is um, together work, you know, being able to touch base with the person who has been sent off to treatment and letting them know that they have support. It doesn't mean that, you know, they're going to be able to go back to work in that environment again, but just to know that they're not alone and that they haven't been, you know, um, isolated from their colleagues. And the same thing happens with the family. My husband wasn't sure what was going to happen with us, you know, our relationship, uh, these kind of things, terror, you know, have a huge impact on the family life. Um, Like I said, my daughter was two, uh, going on three, and, you know, she needed to have her mom at home. And but I had to go off to treatment for for a long period of time. And so that caused a lot of stress in the family. And, um, you know, I remember my husband asking me later, he, he said, where were all those friends that you used to have in the anesthesia department? You know, the group would go out for dinner and stuff, and we would all go as a family. And then all of a sudden, nobody's, nobody's touching base and nobody, you know, my husband had no support whatsoever. Uh, fortunately, the treatment facility had given him some, some advice and suggestions on how he could get some support. So, um, you know, the family is very profoundly affected and, you know, there's anger, there's disappointment. And so it causes a, a, this, this scenario causes a huge stress on the family. And, um, you know, the, both coworkers and the organization or department should keep the communication open with the CRNA and um, letting them know that they're, you know, voicing their concerns and letting them know that they are there to support them and that they are not ostracizing the CRNA who has been taken out of the environment. Yeah, that is, you know, it's, you raise an interesting point because, you know, if um, if one of your colleagues or co-workers in the anesthesia department uh, has a ruptured appendix and uh, has surgery and is out of work for three weeks and gets an infection and they're out of week for two more weeks, you know, there's dinners brought to the house and cards sent and telephone calls and people stop by to visit. But to your point, uh, when someone is entering a recovery program, uh, there's a, an enormous stigma approach attached to that for the individual, for the family, and even for the department that someone, oh, in our department has has been diverting and using drugs. And, and so, you know, I think you raise a critically important point about the 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 multifaceted impact that this has on not just the person who's uh in recovery but the entire family in the department uh, so you know 
for those of uh, folks out there taking taking a listen to this podcast, remember uh, that when someone is in recovery, um, you know their family is affected, the department's affected, and their need for support uh, extends not just to the individual, uh, but for those around them, and they're both in their personal and professional uh, circle. So together, you know, I think we need to really foster an environment. Uh, a broader understanding and compassion uh, during and following someone's recovery. Yeah, you know, thanks Terry and Anita for that comprehensive discussion on, you know, diversion, substance use disorder, and its overall impact on all of others that are around us, whether it's professionally and and uh, at family. And we, we, you know, as Anita has highlighted um, well, is that you're, your social network contracts very quickly because of the stigma. And uh, we need to get past that. Uh, very, very important, um, you know, I think to be stepping uh, along the way, doing uh, checkups on, on that individual that uh, is in support or in treatment um, and frequently encouraging them to stay on the path, uh, you know, to wellness and recovery. And, and Anita, your journey and insights of really been incredibly enlightening. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. So now let's let's shift a little bit more to another critical aspect. And, you know, that's after, you know, we've gone through recovery and, and trying to get things back in order in life and, and our profession, you know, the perspective of the employers. Anita, if you could offer maybe some advice on prospective employers who are considering hiring a CRNA that's in recovery, what kind of guidance could you perhaps provide to help the employer to make an informed and compassionate decision um, when they're, you know, interviewing somebody that has uh, is now in recovery, and and what should the employers really keep in mind when evaluating the candidacy of a of a CRNA who's undergone recovery and looking to return to practice? Is there specific considerations, support systems that either are present or maybe lacking? Uh, and what are the expectations that can contribute to a successful reintegration back into the nurse anesthesia profession? Yeah, Gary, it's that is a very important question. And the employer can play a very pivotal role in facilitating the recovery and reintegration of CRNAs. So some of the advice that I would suggest or um, things that were in place for me that helped me, again, was initially the setting of the anesthesia department and the type, the type of setting is huge. You know, is this a facility? Is this a, a workplace setting that is appropriate for a recovering CRNA? Not all facilities, not all settings are necessarily going to be helpful. If uh, the CRNAs are working long hours and doing lots of call, 
then that that causes um, more stress for the CRNA who's in recovery, who not only has to fulfill all of the work work um, requirements, but that CRNA again is going to be tested at least weekly, usually, and has to leave the workplace in order to be able to do that. And um, they also have recovery meetings that they need to go to. So an environment where where the CRNAs are working you know, more than 40 hours a week is not an appropriate setting for the CRNA. So, you know, it's, it's refreshing to hear from an employer that they're willing to give a CRNA a second chance and give them an opportunity to, to get back into practice. But like I said, not all settings are appropriate for the recovery CRNA. And then if there is a, an appropriate setting for that CRNA um, where there is support, and there is monitoring that's happening, you know, those kind of, um, and, and uh, the support not only of the employer, but of the colleagues as well. You know, it was kind of difficult to, to enter into my first employment, um, returning to anesthesia, because the employer brought everybody in, all of the nurses, all of the CRNAs, CRNAs in, and we had a big um, powwow and, basically it was disclosed to everybody where the path that I had gone, which I, you know, initially I thought it was, that was, you know, pretty rough <laughs> to face that on my first day of, of going back into anesthesia, but it was refreshing then that I, the cat was out of the bag and I did not have to worry about disclosing that to anybody. And, you know, I had to follow my own advice and not worry about what others thought of me and just go about my work and do what I needed to do. <laughs> and um, so having that open communication with the CRNA, between the CRNA and colleagues and the employer is, is huge. And, you know, not having to hide, you know, it was terrible having to hide in the midst of my disease, you know, and to not have to hide and to have that support once I went back to work was refreshing. And, you know, having clear expectations of the monitoring that's going to happen, you know, it's, it was very difficult some weeks when um, I knew I was going to be tested eventually. And then I look at the schedule and it's like, how am I going to get out for this? You know, so as an employer, having a very clear method so that the CRNA is not stressed and to do that um, monitoring and testing because many of the labs, they only do the test on certain days or on certain times during the day. It's not so easy to just go after work when, you know, maybe the lab shuts down and you have traffic to get through in order to get to those drug testings, because those are important. I mean, that is the career saver is making sure that you are proving your sobriety and getting those drug testings done. So, and, and then just, you know, there has to be that communication between the employer and the CRNA of accountability. You know, having the mindset that it's okay that they are trying to, I have to prove my accountability. You know, as CRNAs and as healthcare providers who have access to these drugs, there is no one in the profession that should balk if somebody questions the use and what's happening with the medications that you're pulling up and, you know, are they being disposed of appropriately? 
you know, if anyone, you know, usually that is a sign of somebody's in trouble if they're not willing to be open and accountable for their actions. And, you know, and, and that that is a key indication of whether the CRNA is actually ready to return back to anesthesia. You know, if they're not willing to have that accountability um, to another person, either someone at their same level or someone at a level higher than, than they are, then, you know, maybe that CRNA is not ready or that environment is not the best place for that CRNA. But um, having support and being able to um, support the CRNA to do the things that they need to do in recovery. And it's, that is difficult because the demands up for the employer are huge anyway. And then to bring somebody in that's going to be more of a liability for them is sometimes hard to do. But the mindset is huge in letting each other know that we support each other. Everybody is human. We make mistakes and we have opportunity. We will give opportunities for others to um, have a second chance. And, you know, there were times that I interviewed at jobs and, um, you know, I was turned down and, you know, I realized that, you know, probably that that site was not going to be good for me. And I have been in um, an environment where I had to walk away. I was actually hired, but I had to walk away because the dynamics of the facility and the personalities in that facility caused more stress than needed to be. And I decided it, it wasn't worth it, you know, and I walked away from jobs because of that. So, you know, there's, there's a level of knowledge and understanding both on the employer and for the CRNA who is trying to return into practice. Wow, those are really valuable insights, Anita. And you know, your your advice underscores the importance of compassion, you know, for the workplace employees as well as the leadership team in an organization, and individualized support uh, as well as clear uh, communication that you've alluded to. And it's it's uh, humbling, uh, sobering, and it can be embarrassing. Um, but I think to your point, getting things on the table up front sort of levels the playing field. And, and you know, you've, you've alluded to it is that it, it, you feel sort of um, freed, if you will, when everybody is aware. And um, that way, you know, there's no questions. And um, people are like, all right, you know, let me learn a little bit more about the process. And, and you know, I, I think... You know, and that's where it starts for organizations is to make sure that you have a program in place, not just re-entry, but, um, you know, for catching it up front so we can prevent uh, some of this uh, more proactively. And to our listeners, you know, remember that recovery, it's a journey. It's its not a off and on switch. It's a long journey. It's its tough, and um, but it's not impossible, you know, with the right support um, and understanding from uh, individuals around us, CRNAs can successfully return to practice, continue to provide exceptional anesthesia care to their patients. You know, one of the things that I guess maybe is I've taken from our discussion so far that maybe should be self-evident is that this recovery journey uh, involves both peers and family and coworkers and organizations, and all of them play 
a pretty significant role uh, in providing the support and encouragement someone needs during the recovery journey. And, you know, still uh, there's there's issues of stigma and loneliness that you, you alluded to that can go on through that recovery journey as well. And so, you know, what do you think um, may be the most important thing that these individuals can do to have a positive impact and be a source of strength for someone in recovery as they go through that journey, dealing with the stigma and the loneliness? Um, you know, this team, if you will, of peers, family, and coworkers, how can they um, optimize that person's chance of being successful in their recovery journey? Terry, you've highlighted a critical aspect of recovery. That is of the support of peers, family, and coworkers. And this is ongoing. It's a lifetime. Um, so some of the ways that the individuals can help recovering CRNAs is first being empathetic and non-judgmental, listening um, to the CRNA that is returning, letting them know that they are supported and help create a safe space for them to, um, to work, express their feelings, you know, express their concerns without fear of criticism. You know, I experienced um, some CRNAs are very judgmental about this. And, you know, I'm not going to change their mind initially, but maybe by my successful reentry into anesthesia, even if they know what was going on, that I could change their mind by my being, being successful. But not, not everybody is uh, as supportive as we would like them to be. And that's the challenge for other CR, that's the challenge for the workplace environment. The, the fact of the matter is that everyone is going to face some kind of life challenge that's going to be difficult. And everyone is going to need that support from each other. And so this is just another example of how we help to walk through difficult times with each other. A CRNA recovery is no different than, than someone who has lost a significant other and is struggling with that in, in the work environment. So, you know, being, being able to be accepting of the CRNA, returning to practice and, and allowing the open communication and support of each other is is huge. Like I said, you know, if there's not that acceptance in that work environment, then it's not a good place to practice for me. And I've had to make that decision and walk away from a job without even having anything lined up. But, you know, it was the right thing for me to be so that I made sure I stayed safe. And, um, you know, and so those are situations that just happen. All CRNAs need to make sure that they are educated about addiction and recovery. You know, even if you're not, you're not everyone is, hopefully, there's, very, there's less going through the process than are walking with them. But those that are walking with them, you know, it does help for you to have some education about what this disease is, because there is not a single family in this country who hasn't had some kind of experience with addiction and, and or alcoholism, you know, the, so having an understanding of what the disease is, how to set the boundaries, how to help somebody along the way is, is crucial for all of us in, in our work environments and in our families. 
You know, you um, bring, bring up a good point, Anita. You know, I was, as you were talking about addiction and alcoholism, I, I, and it's not funny, but, you know, the joke around my house is that if you shake any branch of my family tree, an alcoholic will fall out. <laughs> so, oh, my gosh. So, um, anyway, so, you know, I have a pretty clear-eyed uh, understanding of my own risk. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so those are great insights, Anita, you know, because we have to be empathetic. You know, we have to understand that this is something that can happen to anyone. And as 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 CRNA colleagues, we really have to be educated about the disease risks, its pathology and the opportunities for recovery and what things that we can do as peers uh, to support uh, CRNAs who are n navigating this journey, which is filled with stigma and loneliness and uh, and and senses of isolation, uh, and and you know we should mail a card, you know, send some flowers, uh, you know, as we said <laughs> said earlier, uh, and not isolate those people and make them feel uh, like they're bad people because, like you said, they are good people who've who've uh, made some bad choices uh, and and are doing some bad things. So, uh, for our listeners out there, remember that your support. Uh, can make a huge world of difference in someone's recovery journey. Uh, it's a, it's a tough, uh, challenge-filled journey, but you know, uh, as as peers and brothers and sisters in Anastasia, we can can be supportive for that person's journey. And your understanding and compassion can break down those barriers and to reduce the stigma and create an environment of acceptance and healing. And maybe the most important thing is hope. Well, there you have it. Anita, thank you so much for joining us today on Anesthesia Alchemy, Terry and Gary Unplugged. Your insights, experiences, and wisdom have been truly invaluable in shedding light on truly a complex and critical topic in, in nurse anesthesia specific to diversion and recovery. You know, I also want to extend a heartfelt gratitude to our listeners, your engagement and dedication to learning and growing in our profession are what actually make this podcast so meaningful, uh, hopefully for many of you out there listening. So we hope today's discussion has provided you with valuable insights and inspiration around, you know, what is typically sensitive topics like critical incidents, second victim, diversion, uh, and recovery. And so as we wrap up today's episode, I'd like to leave our listeners with some final thoughts. For those in need, whether you're a CRNA facing challenges or a colleague looking for help for someone else, remember that there is support available. Reach out to your professional organizations, utilize the resources that are provided on the AANA website, and never hesitate to seek help or offer it to someone that's in need. Erase that stigma. Save a life. Together, we can create a workplace and a healthcare environment that prioritizes well-being, compassion, and, most of all, recovery. Let us continue to support one another, learn from one another, and work towards a healthier and more resilient profession in anesthesia. Once again, thank you, Anita, for being with us today. To our listeners, stay tuned for more insightful episodes on Anesthesia Alchemy. We're here to empower, educate, and inspire you in your journey as nurse anesthetist. So take care and until next time. 
And, you know, Anita, I just want to echo what Gary has said. Uh, we are so grateful from the from the bottom of our hearts for you being willing to join us today and share the details of your journey and your experience. Um, you know, your contribution to this conversation uh, is, has been exceptional. And I, you know, I cheer your courage for sharing your story. Uh, and so for our dedicated listeners, we want to express our sincere gratitude for being a part of Anesthesia Alchemy uh, Terry and Gary Unplugged, you know, your engagement and support are, mean the world to us, and we hope that today's discussion has been enlightening, and I'm certainly sure it's been thought-provoking and hopefully encouraging as well. As we conclude this episode, we'd like to ask you for a small favor. Please consider sharing our podcast with your colleagues, friends, and anyone in your network who might benefit from this discussion. Uh, we believe in the power of knowledge and collaboration advancing the field of nurse anesthesia, and don't forget to rate us and leave a comment on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback is invaluable in shaping our future episodes. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on what topics you'd like us to explore in upcoming podcasts. Once again, Anita, thank you so much for being here uh, from South Texas. And uh, thank you to our listeners for your time and dedication. We look forward to continuing this journey of learning and growth together. And until next time, take care, be safe, and be well. Anita, thank you so much. Attention all certified nurse anesthetists. Are you in need of a reliable and quality continuing education option? Well, look no further than crnaeducation.com. We are an NBCRNA recognized provider offering all four core CPC modules to meet your certification requirements. You can choose from more than 100 AANA prior approved Class A CE credits with 43 articles covering a wide range of anesthesia topics. Need pharmacology CE credits? Well, we've got you covered there as well with over 40 pharmacology CE credits available. All credits are completed online and are mobile friendly. Choose articles worth one, two, or three credits. There's no subscriptions, no hidden fees, just the CE credits you need when you need them. Owned by CRNAs since 2011, you can trust in our commitment to your education. And customer service is always a quick email or phone call or even text away. To sign up and find out more about our education options, visit crnaeducation.com, your partner in continuing education. That's crnaeducation.com. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support.
Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.